Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Very happy uh, to be with you again this week, Crystal. Very happy to be with you as well. A momentous week that you and I have both had a lot of feelings on. To say the least, um, I mean, this has really sort of scrambled the um, standard teams and standard divides, and there's been a weird cadre of characters who I think are getting it right. Yeah. A weird cadre of characters and basically all of mainstream media and every establishment rag you can think of, they're all getting it wrong. Yes. But yeah, I mean... bad bipartisan consensus. Like every media outlet that you turn to basically has the same terrible take. That's right. Yeah, I think the only people who I've seen who have like really been out front on this and really making the case as it should be made is honestly you, Sagar, myself, Michael Tracy, Mm -hmm. randomly, and uh, Matt Iglesias. Those are the most aggressive voices I've seen on this. Yeah, Ryan Grimm's also. I mean, there have been people who have been good for sure, but it is a moment like this when you see who is has partisan blinders on that they may not even be aware of, right? And who actually is like, no, this is the principle. This is what I have stood for. I would stand for this, whether it was Donald Trump or Joe Biden, and just put the information out there. And so, I mean, it it has been pretty incredible to watch the parade of like, John Bolton and suddenly George W. Bush is out there again and Condoleezza Rice writing op-eds and Paul Wolfowitz and Petraeus, who oversaw, you know, the most deadly portion of the Afghanistan war. And they're all being offered up uncritically as experts that we should listen to with a straight face, which is just completely absurd. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been so critical of Biden on so many things. And um, this is a rare instance where I think he's the people are just unfairly piling on to him. I think that he was also sort of misled in many ways. I trust him more than I trust the intelligence agencies oh. who originally were out there saying, uh, sir, it's going to be 90 days you have to get out all of our people. And then um, as soon as Kabul took Afghanistan and took, uh, excuse me, as soon as uh, the Taliban took Kabul immediately and took Afghanistan, then the CIA runs to their lackeys in the media and they're like, we warned him it was going to happen like right now and he didn't listen. Right, and yeah. So, and immediately that got kind of debunked. The first indication that that was bullshit is just like using your brain. The second indication that that was bullshit is it turns out the CIA director, when Kabul fell, was on like a six-day Mideast swing, which would indicate to you they did not think that the collapse of Afghanistan was imminent because he wouldn't be doing that. And then actually um, General Milley came out and said there was no intelligence that would have indicated that it would all happen ultimately this fast. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're full PSYOP mode. Um, the hawks are all out there trying. This is what disgusts me, playing on people's true humanitarian instinct right yeah in order to justify another unconscionable you know year or five years or endless war that they ultimately what their ultimate goal is yeah yeah i mean there are plenty of well-meaning people who hear like we have to protect the women in afghanistan and they think like yeah you got to protect women's rights you got to protect human rights what are you you have to do it but you know if you really believe that that's the, the purpose of our foreign policy i got a bridge to sell you I mean, we don't care about freedom and democracy. I mean, we just gave multi-billion dollar weapons deal to Israel as they were bombing the AP building in Gaza and as they were raising a Palestinian village. We just fought to get Saudi Arabia on the UN Human Rights Council. On what planet can you look at that and say, yeah, these people are honest actors who are just fighting for the liberation of people in Afghanistan? Right. I mean, it's ludicrous. Yeah, well, I mean, we can just look at the history of our our 
actions in Afghanistan to see that case. I mean, we were happy to back the Mujahideen and train Osama bin Laden. That's right. And funnel ma- money through our great friends, the Saudis and the Pakistanis that ultimately actually went to the Taliban. Right. So um, all of this post uh, justification of, oh, we're really there for the women and the girls. Come on, guys. We didn't go in there for the women and the girls. And unfortunately, there are a lot of horrific tragedies unfolding around the world all the time. And actually, Joe Biden, to his credit, he made that point. I mean, right. He made that point and made it really effectively. And the way that you bolster human rights isn't by invading a country. That's yeah, not the way gonna, that this works. We're going to bolster human rights by violating more human rights. Right. Somehow it's going to work out. That's <laughs> yeah. literally an. an contradiction that that makes no sense so anyway we're going to have a lot more uh coming up on afghanistan that's going to be the whole point of of today's show we have uh, a great expert on this coming on and i'm really looking forward to talking to matthew ho um so before we get into that though uh let's talk a little bit about this new poll that just came out um it is to be fair to rasmussen poll they they are right-leaning that's pretty clear Mm -hmm. however you do have to point out that in the last election, it was the right-leaning polls that happened to be most accurate. So, you know, it is what it is. Do I think that the reason they were more accurate is because their methodology is better and they care more about objective truth? No, (laughs) I just think it happened to be the case that they were more accurate because the traditional pollsters were sort of undercounting the the Trump support. That's certainly what Um, it's like. So anyway, their new poll suggests that Trump would win if the election were today. Uh, namely because women and black voters regret their choice and 14% would choose another candidate. Hmm. So I'll give you a little bit more on this. Um, The total numbers, if it were held today, it'd be Biden, or excuse me, it'd be Trump 43% to Biden 37%. Where are the rest of the percent? um, I don't know. 51% of voters say Biden is more to blame for Afghanistan than Trump. Um, And the poll was taken August 16th to 17th. And this latest data comes from comes at the same time that Biden's overall approval rating has dipped below 50 percent for the first time. Yeah. I mean, Trump came really freaking close to getting reelected, you know, this last time around. And that was after effectively being responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. And he still came within, you know, a very tight margin in a few key states of getting reelected. So I don't think it's crazy to imagine that if you redid the election today, that, yeah, he might be able to to pull it off this time because it was very narrow last time. I think you're right. But the thing that really annoys me is this instinct where if things aren't going well, um, did, the American voter oftentimes just sort of swings back and forth between Democrats and Republicans mm-hmm. in a mindless way. It's like, I don't like things the way they are now. Who's in control? Them? All right, I'm going to go with the other guys. Then the other guys fuck everything up. And it's like, I don't like this. I'm going to go with the other guys. And it's just like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And nothing really seems to get fixed. And also, yes, as of right now, the reason why Biden's approval rating just dipped below 50 percent is because of the relentless media propaganda against him when it comes to Afghanistan. And Donald Trump's out there criticizing Biden on this front when Biden's just following through on the thing Trump said he would do, but he was too big of a cuck to stand up to the military uh, military industrial complex and follow through on it. Yeah. So it's just it's so like he's so disingenuous and it's so annoying. It's like if you were actually being principled on this, Trump and Rand Paul and Matt Gates and all the people on the right who pretend to be anti-war would be like, listen, on the on the broader point here, Biden's correct in getting out. Y- you want to nitpick the withdrawal? One person who's uh, like elite Republican, some a politician in the Republican Party who has had that take. Because they're hacks. 
total hack. And the only one I've seen on the Democratic side, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong because there might be others, but all I saw was Ilhan Omar come out and say like, yeah, Biden's fine talking about why you can't do endless war. I will say they definitely haven't been like, you know, if Trump had done this exact same thing, almost every Republican would be out there. He would have a very strong contingent of Republicans out there going to bat for him aggressively. Right. right. And mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson would be you oh, know, completely pro. started on him. The whole thing. I mean, they'd be all in on it. Um, there would be some dissenters. This is the one area where you'd yeah. see Republican Party. You'd see Liz Cheney. Yeah. You'd see Adam Kinzinger. I mean, I guess to their credit, at least they have the same bad take, regardless of whether it's a— Well, they're consistently wrong. They're consistently yes. wrong, mm-hmm. whereas these other people, they just, like, whatever their partisan take is supposed to be, that's where they locate themselves. But, yeah, it's disgusting. I mean, I think with Biden, first of all, we should wait and see how this all settles out. Right. I think in the long run, people will realize he was right. I mean, I don't know, but I I think that's definitely a possibility. The other thing I would say is I don't actually think it's just the Afghanistan withdrawal that's weighing on him. I also think, you know, there's been a lot of dithering with regard to getting these next pieces of his agenda through Um, the infrastructure package, getting more help to people in terms of. Um, universal pre-K and the other pieces that are in the reconciliation package. You've been obsessed with this like bipartisanship fetish. And so his agenda had kind of gotten bogged down before we even got to that. And I think that may be weighing in on this as well. See, he was already underwater on those fronts, though. He was already underwater because I covered a poll on this a week or two ago. Um, the one area where he was above water and he actually gained points was Afghanistan. Right. And this even was when the Taliban was taking other cities and other towns and other villages, there was a lot of of media coverage of that. And he Mm. still went up to 55% approval on the issue of Afghanistan. So now the one area where he was seemingly above water, that's the area where he's getting hit the most relentlessly in the media. And that has chipped away at people and and it went down. Well, so I have a bunch of the Afghanistan polls. Well, let's jump into that now. Well, before we do that, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you're of the opinion that Trump, if he runs again, could win again. Don't are you of that opinion? Oh, he certainly could. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It will. Am I making a definitive? Prediction? He will. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. Not write that possibility. Off. No, if you I write it off, you're an idiot. Can't like wrap their head around that. But he came very close this time. If you write it off, you're an idiot. But I also think people who are very definitive that he will win. I also think that's ludicrous. You don't. We don't know. We don't yeah. know yet. And he, he's not he's not as smooth. In 2016, he was a phenomenal candidate. He was on message. He was relentless. It was all about, you know, outsourcing the jobs. And he gave the right wing base the bigotry that they wanted with the Mexicans, the criminals, the rapists and all that stuff and the mm-hmm. Muslim ban. He was more on message. 2020, he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He didn't know whether he was coming or going. He was a mess. And so 2024, all the indications I've seen to this point are he's still a fucking mess. But mm-hmm. lucky for him. He's not the one that's getting most of the fire right now because the media is dumping on Biden relentlessly and that's making his numbers go down. They've actually so Politico, whose uh, playbook newsletter is oftentimes brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Right. So you yeah, know, they're I had really a lot coming, to say about really that. coming from mm-hmm. the right place on this. They were comparing Biden's speech this week, which I personally thought was excellent and honest Same. and courageous mm-hmm. and one of the best presidential moments I've seen in my lifetime. Frankly, they described that as Trumpian. They said it was Trumpian, which is, you know, of course, the ultimate insult. But to your point, even on this, his response to what's happening in Afghanistan, he's showing how he's really lost a step because his initial response, Trump's, was like, 
we got to bring in the refugee. Like, I'm worried yeah. about the refugees. All these people treated us so kindly, and they're not allowed to seek refuge? This is ridiculous. Right. And I was like, yeah. okay, I agree. Right. That. I, mean, I mean, like, mm-hmm. broken clock, whatever. But the minute that he saw Tucker going in a different direction and the base going yeah. in a different direction and being like, we can have these refugees, he completely flipped and yes. took the polar opposite position. So he's... He doesn't know where to be anymore these days. That's right. What he said was there was the picture that came out of the 600 Afghans on the American Mm -hmm. plane, cargo plane, and he released a statement that was like, this is ridiculous. We need to get Americans out first. America first. It's like, you just said we should get out the 88,000 refugees who were nice to us. Now, all of a sudden, 600 of them are getting out. You're like, whoa, 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 hold your horses. You can't have this. So you're right. He lost a step. He doesn't. He doesn't know whether he's coming or going. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. have his finger on the the pulse of the base the way he wants did. Correct. Yeah. And I will say this. This is something that I haven't. Only person who pointed this out was Nate Cohn, and nobody else really picked up on it. I talked about it on my show. Um, the media was saying, "Oh my God, this is just like the fall of Saigon." Now. The takeaway from that wasn't, though, we should have stayed in Saigon and stayed in Vietnam forever. The the reaction was like, we shouldn't have gone in in the first place. Right. But he also went on to point out that um, President Ford's approval rating a month later went up. Yeah. It didn't go down. So even though people were like, oh, my God, this is, you know, this is embarrassing for the United States or whatever, they didn't blame Ford. Right. And so my point about why I think it's going to work out for Biden in the long run is history is actually a ruthless judge in the in the proper direction. That's why we all, and you know, Martin Luther King Day, everybody real, in the moment, at the time, he wasn't beloved. People don't remember that. People don't know that. He actually had a an underwater approval rating at the time because mm-hmm. they, oh my God, these guys are causing trouble by doing these marches radical. and everything, these radicals. Have this. But in retrospect, everybody realizes, oh, he was the hero in the story. Daniel Ellsberg, at the time, he was viewed as a traitor. Mm-hmm. Now he's viewed as a hero. Edward Snowden, even today, is sort of viewed as a hero, and we're not even that far removed from when his leaks originally came out. So you think uh, over the course of history, the truth generally wins out? Of course. That's a very hopeful take. Well, I I just gave multiple examples of that. That's the exact thing that happened. So I think that it is going to happen with Biden. I think that right now the media freakout, you know, it's— it's ridiculous. And in time, people will realize on the broader point, he's right. And we needed to get out. And that's that's what should have happened. Something I've been thinking about and revisiting is um, when they decided to do the auto bailout, a decision that Biden was very involved with mm-hmm. and also um, instrumental in touting as a major Obama administration success. But before they did it, it was really unpopular. Right. Like when you pulled on doing the auto bailout to rescue American automakers, it was dramatically underwater. But they did it anyway because they, I guess, believed in it or thought that those numbers turned around. And that ended up being one of the core promises or core um, accomplishments that they ran on and won on in 2012. It was probably helped Biden in his election against Trump this time still. I think that's that's probably correct and gave him just that little bit of like favorable sort of glow and aura around him where he's able to eke out Michigan. He's able to eke out Wisconsin. I think there is something to that. So the the insta judgment can oftentimes change dramatically over time and to your point about how history ultimately the truth wins out and we certainly see that with the way people feel about the Iraq war now and definitely how they feel about the Afghanistan war as well so here's some of the polling so part of what is interesting here is that people have a lot of mixed emotions um 
they're a little bit, sometimes they're contradictory. They're kind of all over the map. And a lot of what you get out of this Afghanistan polling depends on how you're framing the question. So uh, there was an AP poll that just came out that says two-thirds of Americans, even with everything that we're seeing with the withdrawal and the ugly images and horrifying scenes and all of that, Two-thirds of people still say this war was not worth it. And that's a bipartisan sentiment. So 67% of Democrats and 57% of Republicans and the independents somewhere in between. So very clear judgment on the war overall. But to give you a sense of how people have sort of like conflicting emotions about it, they interviewed one voter, Sebastian Garcia, 23-year-old Biden voter from Texas, who said, I don't believe we should have been in there to begin with, but now that we're leaving, I do feel we probably should stay after seeing, I guess you'd say, the trouble that we've caused. So that's one response. Politico, Morning Consult, they did a poll. They found this was an interesting one, too. So only 25 percent of voters think that the withdrawal from Afghanistan is going well. And I think if you're looking at the images, it's pretty hard to argue that it's really going well. However, they still have a positive rating in terms of voters who think that we should be getting out. So 49% of voters continue to support the withdrawal versus 37% who don't support the withdrawal. So it's still plus 12, even though that's dramatically down from where things were back in July before we actually started to try to wrap up this very messy, ugly situation. So um, to your point, there, there's some just flat-out contradictions. It's not even like, you know, people are just conflicted. In some ways, people just have contradictory views. So um, there's another poll. Couldn't find the original source for it, but you see the table. It's originally from a PDF, which is why I'm having a hard time finding it. I think it's Economist, but I'm not 100% sure. But listen to these questions that were asked back-to-back. Um, uh, to what extent do you support or oppose the following? America sending combat troops back into Afghanistan to fight the Taliban. So in other words, that's like, should we reinvade and go, go back. back to war? Okay, ready? 50% oh. support that. 36% oppose that. That's terrible. Now, wait, wait. The very next question. America completing its withdrawal of troops on schedule. 61% support us doing that. Mm. And 25% oppose it. So hmm. that means there are people who said both... We should go, go back, back in, in there and fight the Taliban. And also, we definitely should stay on schedule and withdraw our troops. <laughs> so uh, there's some stuff that's just flat out contradictory. Now, let me do my whole spiel on this, because this yeah. is something that really, really, really pisses me off. To the extent that anybody's conflicted or people have contradictory views, the only reason why we're there is because their entire media is full of shit and it's lying to them every step of the way. We have neocon warhawks who are being held up as if they're experts on this when they're war criminals who should be in The Hague. I'm talking about people like Ari Fleischer. I'm talking about people like John Bolton, who they're talking to as if he's some sort of neutral, objective arbiter of the truth, which is absolutely insane. But then you have the liberal interventionists who are just as bad. Yeah. People like Jake Tapper, who are nitpicking the way in which this is going down. And that's the other thing. Even in the polls, people are conflating um, the process of how we were, we're getting out with the general idea of, should we get out? Right. Because if you ask, just, just the general idea, should we get out of Afghanistan? It's overwhelming on the side of get out. But then you can conflate it and make it sound, you know, messy and make it sound more split when you phrase it in a way about the process of how we got out. Like, is, is the execution going well? And it's a way to try to, to gin up this uh, 
this war fever again. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. And nothing pisses me off more because I remember back in, I think it was like 2013 or 2014, there was a poll that came out and the war in Afghanistan was more unpopular than Vietnam at the height of its unpopularity. Wow. It was under 20%. If I'm not mistaken, the number was either 19% or 13% support for the war in Afghanistan. So that's where Americans are. And the problem with the media on this front and the problem with the propaganda is this. Because some people would say, Kyle, I don't know. They're just reporting the facts on the ground. So why can, how can you be upset about that? They're just telling people exactly what's happening. Here's the problem. It's selective emphasis. So as we pull out, all of a sudden, the microscopes come out. Everybody's looking at every little nook and cranny of what's going on, mm-hmm. and everything's hair on fire coverage. This is crazy. Everybody go nuts. Oh my God, look at what's happening. Isn't this terrible? They didn't have one-tenth of the level of scrutiny for all the shitty things that happened when we were there. When we bombed a hospital in Kunduz, and we killed, I think it was 23 civilians. Was there hair on fire coverage over a uh, uh, over the course of a week about that? Oh my God, we're killing civilians. What are we doing? What, what we're protecting people from the Taliban? In this way, we're killing civilians yeah. just like the Taliban. What happened? We bombed a wedding. What about that? We dropped, what's the number? Over 7,000 bombs in 2019. Civilian casualties shot through the roof. We broke a record in civilian casualties just a couple of years ago. Yep. Where was their on fire coverage for this? When the Pentagon, pa- or excuse me, not the Pentagon Papers, the Afghanistan Papers dropped, it was in the news for less than a day. And what did we learn? They lied to us every single step of the way. That's right. Every step of the way, but it wasn't a big scandal. They didn't talk about it. So selective emphasis is the problem. There's lies by commission and there's lies by omission. If all of your scrutiny and all of your outrage is saved only for when we draw down, but you didn't say anything about the fact that our allies were warlords with child sex slaves and people in the military got discharged when they blew the whistle on that. I don't want to hear your fucking opinion if you weren't outraged about the stuff happening when the war was going on. And that's the entire media. So they're duped to the military industrial complex, either wittingly or unwittingly. I don't care what the purpose is. They're either idiots or they're nefarious and they're doing it on purpose. I don't care what it is. Either way, don't trust them. They're liars. They are pretending like they care about Afghan lives now. When, as you point out, the deadliest year for Afghan civilians was 2019. When we were there dropping bombs. Because we were dropping so many. Right. I didn't see a single segment on that. Nope. Not one, okay? Maybe there was one, okay? I didn't see it. I didn't see any coverage of it whatsoever. You had to really dig deep to know that was even going on. So all of these people now running around pretending like they're great humanitarians and they just care so much about the women and the girls— We didn't go to Afghanistan because of the women and the girls. I mean, it's just, it's a ridiculous notion. And so they try to manipulate people who are good people, who do care that we try to do the right thing around the world and try to protect people. And they're manipulating those good instincts for the nefarious end. And what is the nefarious end? Well, ultimately, that $2 trillion that we spent in Afghanistan, the estimate I saw is that you know, we had this whole fairy story about, oh, they're building schools and they're building infrastructure and the girls' robotics team and all this stuff. 80 to 90% of that ended up in the pockets of Beltway military defense contractors. That's what this all ultimately was. You want to know why did we stay for so long? Why were we so unable to extricate ourselves long after anything resembling the original mission had long been over? Um, It's because of the number of people who were making so much money off of it. And then they have those same people on now, uncritically, as like panelists and experts 
to deride the Biden administration for actually doing the thing that should have been done decades, decades, literally decades ago. Um, Matt Iglesias had a good tweet on this that I will read, which says, did Biden make the right call in Afghanistan? We asked 27 former senior national security officials now working as defense contractors whose work there failed on every level. Their verdict, definitely blame Biden and not themselves and keep the money coming. Why? Because they need to, they need you to think that this messy situation that is unfolding before our eyes in Afghanistan, that that's the real problem versus the real problem being the 20 years of death and of corruption and of unconscionable and the lies that were told to the American people time and time again. They need you to ignore all of that and believe that, oh, this all would have been fine if we had just like issued some more visas ahead of time or just stayed another month longer, then it all would have been fine. Ask yourself this question. Ask yourself why you don't know the following fact that I'm about to let you know. You know who we backed very recently in Afghanistan? Hmm. The Taliban, because they were fighting ISIS. And so we used them to fight ISIS in the same way that in the 1980s, we armed the Mujahideen because the Mujahideen were fighting the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. in the same way that right now we back Saudi Arabia and we back uh, Sunni militias on the ground in Yemen who are fighting the Shia Houthis who've taken over the government and we don't want them to take over the government. You know who those Sunni militias are? Al-Qaeda. That's who we're backing. So ask yourself, all this selective outrage, oh my God, women's rights, this and that. Why has the media not told you that we've allied with jihadists? We've allied with the Taliban. Why have they not told you any of that? Because it, it bucks their narrative and it's inconvenient. And so they don't tell you the truth. And I mean, you got to the heart of it right there. The real reasons were there. A lot of it has to do with imperialism. A lot of it has to do with geopolitics and controlling a region of the world that we consider vital. We want to keep China at bay. We want to keep Russia at bay. It has to do with the trillions of dollars in mineral wealth that's there in Afghanistan. We don't want anybody else getting their hands on it. We want to be the ones who have access to it. Uh, And it's about military industrial complex profits. And you've set up this gigantic network of grifters who are getting phenomenally wealthy off of us being there. And so we're there. And, you know, here we have a president who, for the first time in my lifetime, put both middle fingers up to the military-industrial complex, put both middle fingers up to the establishment and the leadership of both parties, uh, put it up to the deep state, the CIA and the Pentagon, and nobody's defending him. Nobody's defending him. And instead, they're nitpicking the process by which we get out. Do I have criticisms as to how we got out? Of course. Would I have tried to get out the 88,000 people who are our close allies? I absolutely would have. Am I saying there's zero criticisms that you can make? Of course not. But if you're not stressing the main point, which is that on the overarching point, Joe Biden is correct, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear the nitpicking of the process because guess what? Like you said, If we left a year from now, if we left five years from now, if we left 10 years from now, if we left 30 years from now, Afghanistan was still going to fall and become Talibanistan. Kabul was still going to fall and it would have fallen in 11 days, whether it's now five years, 10 years or 20 years in the future. So, you know, as a matter of fact, the media was always going to say, not like this. I'm in favor of you getting out. Just not like this. Right. But if this is going to happen, no matter when we get out, then you're actually never in favor of getting out. Now, right. are you? Well, and the real black bill is actually, if we had gotten out long ago, we're in a much better position because what happened? The people that we were backing were such like 
corrupt criminals, abusive criminals, that it gave the Taliban a chance, who we had effectively destroyed, a chance to reconstitute and have these propaganda wins about we need to get the foreign invaders out and these corrupt kleptocrats out. And that allowed them to build genuine support um, because the people that we backed for so long were so incredibly terrible. Uh, Ghani, the president, the puppet president of Afghanistan, who we put in there, uh, there are reports now that when he escaped to Tajikistan, he left with over $150 million in cash. Mm-hmm. Bags of cash. So what, what, so what are we fighting to uphold here? That's what we're right, fighting to uphold? And that's the thing that does kill me. And Biden does do this, and it does annoy me, is he's like, they wouldn't even, the Afghan army wouldn't even stand up and fight for their country. Like, you going to fight for the dude that just fled with $150 no, right. million in cash? They're right to not fight so. for their, right, yeah. exactly, they're right. It's not, I'm not making a value judgment. Yeah. He's correct that there were if there were 300,000 of them and they had the most modern weapons in the world, yeah, they didn't really have the will to fight, but they shouldn't have had the will to fight. Yeah. You know, there was maybe 1,000 or 2,000 in the Spice News documentary like, I watched lay this you? out. Elite fighters who did care and were fighting, and, you know, uh, God bless them, but, yeah, it, what, are you going to fight for a fake country and a fake project like that? Right. No, you're, you're not going to do you're that. You're going to fight for the glory of the, you know, warlord with the child sex slaves that we allied with? Is that who you're going to pick up arms to put your life on the line for? I don't think so, and they didn't think so either. Now, again, I'll say it one more time. Everybody out there, compare the conversation we're having right now to anything you see on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News because they we are on different planets when it comes to this. And yeah. I think that says a lot about just how objectively terrible they are. I think that says a lot too. Um, the next voice that we'll have on, you definitely are not going to hear on any of those platforms. Matthew Ho was a Marine. He deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, he also then worked for the State Department on the ground in Afghanistan. He was, let me get his title here, former senior civilian representative for Zabul province. I'm not sure if you say that right, but Zabul I'm going with. Uh, he's now senior fellow emeritus at the Center for International Policy and a member of Eisenhower Media. And uh, back in 2009, surge era under Obama, he resigned uh, from his State Department post and effectively said, I can no longer associate myself with this war in a letter that you now go back and read was incredibly, incredibly prescient. So excited to speak now to Matthew Ho. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. So I was just telling our audience that you resigned um, from your post with the State Department over what you saw as an effectively unjustifiable war in Afghanistan in a letter, your resignation letter, reading it back today from 2009 was quite prescient. But the, the key piece here, you said, to put simply, I fail to see the value or the worth in continued U.S. casualties or expenditures of resources in support of the Afghan government in what is truly a 35-year-old civil war. Just share with people and take your time in in telling this story how you came to this place um, and what made you decide to take what was a, you know, pretty dramatic action of resigning from your post there. Sure. Well, well, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, so I, I initially went in the Marine Corps in January 1998 after college, and I was involved in both in the Iraq War twice, uh, once as a Marine Corps officer in charge of a company of Marines, and then uh, this another time as a Department of Defense official on a State Department reconstruction and governance team. Um, I also has, was involved uh, in Iraq policy and operations from Washington, D.C., and because I have worked with the State Department, including having been on the State Department's Iraq desk, 
I had the appointment in two, I had the opportunity in 2008 to be appointed into the, the Foreign Service and to go to Afghanistan as a political officer. Um, at that point, I was uh, I was not linking the two wars as as I should have. Uh, I, I really, at that point, believed that these wars were separate in many ways, uh, much as if I was, you know, I understood U.S. history. I, I understood the imperial and, and colonial aspects of American history. I understood the United States as an empire, but I failed to connect all the events from the past going back to say that, uh, you know, uh, the wars against the Native Americans, uh, you know, the the, the, uh, Philippine, the Spanish-American War, the Mexican-American War, on and on through Vietnam, through Central America. I failed to connect that with what was happening. And so it took me going to Afghanistan to see the reality that that war was fundamentally no different than the Iraq war. Yeah, you can make comments, you can make points, you can say the, the terrain's different, the, the, the people are different, the culture is different, but the only thing that mattered, uh, uh, the only thing that mattered was that the US military was occupying Afghanistan and the United States was trying to achieve military victory in the midst of a civil war. Now this was a civil war, of course, that the United States instigated and sustained you know, back in the 1970s, um, but it was certainly a war that we were, the United States had jumped into uh, in, in, in 2001 and decided that the path to uh, a victory was solely through military means. Um, I had thought very mistakenly that the United States in 2009 under Barack Obama would be conducting the war in a manner that would try to achieve a political solution. Certainly that was what was being said in 2008. That's what General Petraeus says in the fall of 2008 when he takes over Central Command. We are gonna pursue a political solution. There is no military solution in Afghanistan. Barack Obama says more or less the same thing. But as soon as Barack Obama comes into office, the strategy in Afghanistan is one of military victory. Um, and after getting to Afghanistan, April of 2009, again, seeing the war was was no different um, than the Iraq war. At that point, I was already uh, morally and intellectually broken. I was going uh, through tremendous uh, mental health issues uh, because of the war, because of moral injury, because of post-traumatic stress disorder, because of what's known as perpetration-induced traumatic stress. Um, I, by the time five months came around, seeing what I saw in Afghanistan, the same I had seen in Iraq, there was uh, no way I could go along with the escalation of the war, uh, you know, particularly in fact because the war was counterproductive. Everything we did with the war in terms of trying to fight the Taliban harder only brought the Taliban more popular support. Uh, the United States in both of these wars, as well as throughout its history, pursued a divide-and-conquer strategy. And with that divide-and-conquer strategy, it just simply pushes people to insurgent groups and extremist groups. Because if you're on the wrong side of that divide-and-conquer strategy, you have no one else to turn to. You are basically – you have an existential threat against you. And that's what I saw and seen happen with the Sunnis in Iraq, seeing happen, saw happen with, or seeing happen with the Pashtuns, as well as just the – you know, the, the – the wastefulness of the war, the futility, uh, and the lies of it, the, the absolute lies and fabrication, the myth, the narratives, all the things that sustained the war, uh, that kept it going, that got uh, American political and, pu and public support, uh, you know, just complete lies, myth, fabrication. So after five months of being there, um, I resigned in protest, uh, as I said, over the escalation of the war. And yeah, here we are 12 years later. 
So, Matt, I just watched uh, this documentary from Frontline called Obama's War the other day, uh, right after Kabul fell. And um, it was it was really interesting to watch because they were they were on the front line, basically, with U.S. troops. And this was back when um, the Taliban was basically limited to Helmand province. And um, what became very apparent to me is the strategy at the time was like, well, the American soldiers are going to try to separate out the Taliban versus uh, regular Afghans and then try to create um, relationships with those regular Afghans and like turn them against the Taliban. And of course, o- the Helmand provinces where all the opium is basically grown or the poppy is grown. And um, as I was watching it, it became clear to me that for because of, you know, cultural differences and because of the mission and the fact that the U.S. soldiers were there with all their gear and their big guns. And I, you saw the interaction between the Afghans and the Americans. The, the Americans, at least in this documentary, were very, like, forceful with these, you know, goat herders and farmers. Yeah. And um, the Taliban had the strategy of, like, getting in with the communities and asking them if they needed anything and, like, in many ways, they were vicious and, and deployed primitive justice. But on the other hand, they also brought a sense of law and order. So I guess my question is, um, when you were there, did you get the sense that we were in the process of effectively trying to nation build? And did you get the sense that it was a futile effort from the very beginning? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the unit I was in, I, I was uh, my, my first role in Afghanistan when I showed up was the, st- the embassy sent me to the east to be uh, the acting political advisor for a U.S. Army brigade. And, and so in that capacity, I was a senior civilian, the senior political officer for four provinces in eastern Afghanistan. And I did that for a couple months before going down to the position I was originally meant for down in the south of Afghanistan, where I was the uh, U.S. political advisor for a province and uh, you know a senior civilian for the entire south of Afghanistan as well. Um, and the unit I was on, the unit that I, I helped lead in Afghanistan and Zabal province was called a provincial reconstruction team. I mean, that was the focus of effort for not just the Americans, but for all of NATO in Afghanistan was this, or these provincial reconstruction teams. So the idea that somehow the United States was not nation building, it's just, it's just a complete, it's a complete lie. There's, and I, I think that is when, when President Biden said that both in July, he said that it was not about nation building. And then again, this past week when he said it was not about nation building, the affront, I think, to the million or so American and, and NATO veterans of the war and their families who have dealt with this war uh, and who have had who are still living with the effects of this war, the affront to them to so casually lie about the reason for the war, what they were actually doing, why they were killing people, why they themselves were being killed, why they were coming home maimed, why they were coming home with traumatic brain injuries, why, you know, all all these things for the president of the United States to so easily lie about that, not once, but twice, because he said it again in July and he got called out on it. And then him and his people said, you know what, we're still going to say this because we have to cover ourselves. You know, I, I, you know, I think if there's, that is maybe the best encapsulation of the lies of these wars, how easy the lies are, why the lies are important, because it's not just, you know, Kyle, it's just not just about 
the details about the lying about how many girls went to school, which is a complete lie, you know, about the number of, of, of health care centers we built, which was a lie, about the life expectancy rates of the Afghan people, which was also a lie. You know, not lies, but we're making progress. We're defeating the Taliban. Those lies are very important. But I think the most important lies are the lies about why we were there, the narratives for these wars, the things that feed into that Manichaean good versus evil struggle, that America is a force for good, that what we are doing over there is helping the Afghans, what we are doing over there is protecting America from another attack. Those are the lies I think that are the most important. And those are the lies that, uh, because those are the lies that have stained these wars, those are the lies that have continued these wars, the lies certainly started these wars, in many ways, because, again, this war does not begin September 11th. This war begins in the 1970s uh, in instigated by the United States. Uh, so, you know, I, I think when we look in, in terms of when people say things about what the United States was doing there, you have to understand that, you know, the, the, the honesty that's being addressed with that, there is an ulterior motive. There's a reason uh, why people say things, and it's for political purposes. And I think the best understanding of this, right, is is the work the Washington Post did with their Afghan papers. If, if people are not familiar with the mm. Afghan papers, December 2019, the Washington Post, after three years of court battles with the U.S. government, uh, receives the interviews of more than 400 officials, senior officials, both military and civilian, who have been involved in the Afghan war since 2001. And what the Post states uh, uh, quite clearly, is that the war in Afghanistan was one big systemic lie. The Post uses nicer language than I do. That they'll say things like they hid the truth. But the reality is, is that one big systemic lie. Yeah. And if you understand that, and, and, and to, to even go further on the, the, the point that the Post makes, the Post then says the reasons for these lies were nothing more than to support the domestic political priorities of the White House, whether it be uh, a, a Democrat or Republican in office. And I, I think that is the most important thing we can understand about what the United States was doing in Afghanistan and why it was doing it and, and why uh, it, Afghanistan is in the situation it is now. So I want to back up to your personal experience again, because um, we both have talked quite a bit about the Afghanistan papers, and I think you're exactly right. What it really exposes, I mean, there are quotes there of them just blatantly admitting that they cooked the books on the statistics yep. to persuade the American people that progress was being made when, in fact, the polar opposite of that was the truth. Um, you have people casually admitting that uh, they don't know why the hell they're there, that they're really nobody could possibly define the mission. Nobody knows why this thing continues to go on. Of course, we know the truth, which is a lot of people are making a lot of money off of it. So that was a big part of the reason that sure. it was going on. But what was your personal experience with coming to grips with the public perception and what you had been sold and in some instances bought into in, in Afghanistan and the reality once you arrive? What was the first indication for you that, oh, this is not the thing that I thought it was ultimately going to be? Sure. Uh, you know, and my rationalizations for being involved in these wars change over time. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of us understand that there are, are we have dualities to ourselves. We do, you know, why we do things oftentimes are in opposition to what we actually believe because we have pressures, you know, uh, within us. So, uh, uh, 
when I first take part in the Iraq war in 2004, I understand the Iraq war to have been uh, not a mistake, but, you know, a, a criminal enterprise. But at that point, I think, you know, I can make a difference. I can go over there and I can make a difference. Uh, by the time I get home a year later, I realize that's uh, completely absurd. But then my, then I make the excuse to myself, well, you know what, if I stay involved, and when I came home from Iraq my first time, I went to work on the Iraq desk at the State Department. Mm. If I stay involved, when I become a senior official, then I can make a difference, mm. right? And then, uh, then and that 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 doesn't seem to, to to make sense anymore. But then at that point, I have the opportunity. At that, I was I was a Marine Corps reservist, a Marine Corps reserve officer. I have the opportunity to mobilize and take a company of Marines and sailors to Iraq. And then it becomes, well, you know, I'm a pretty good officer. I'm a better officer than other guys I know. If I go, I can make sure. A lot of these young men come back home to their families. Mm. I mean, so I think a lot of us, we keep rationalizing and making excuses. Um, you know, and I, I want to say, I think the first, the story I, I told a lot when I came back from Af Afghanistan and, and um, to try and explain the war there was in 2009, the most dangerous place, uh, the, the deadliest place for American forces in Afghanistan was a, was a place in the, uh, uh, the Kunar Valley called the Korangal Valley, which many people might remember because in 2009, it was being celebrated across American media. It was on the cover of Time magazine as the Valley of Death, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, came to visit. And he, we, went up to the Korangal and he said, what are we doing up here? And what would happen if we left? And the first answer was answered from the two-star level down to like, you know, my level, nothing's gonna happen. If we leave the Korangal, nothing is gonna happen. And that's precisely what happened after we left the Korangal about two years later, nothing happened. The second question was harder, why are we here? So myself and another guy, we got the responsibility of finding out how the heck did we ever end up in the Korangal? And, you know, because the official explanations for the United States being in the Korangal, and if people don't remember, the Korangal Valley is where uh, if people remember the, uh, uh, the the Navy SEAL who wrote the book Lone Survivor, that Mark Wahlberg mm. was in the film, Marcus Luttrell. Yeah. That story, a lot of problems with that story, a lot of problems with that story. But that happens in the Korangal, right? The idea that they're going in there because there are all these senior level Al Qaeda people in there. That's that's what that's what the American public is being told about this, that there's this connection between the Taliban and Al Qaeda, the connection between these these villagers and Al Qaeda that we have to root out. We have to be there for. Well, I call that I call the unit that had previously been in Afghanistan. Why were we because I asked the guys in the Korangal, what are you doing there? I don't know. We came here because the guys before us were here. I call the previous unit, got the same answer. Previous unit, got the same answer. You know, I finally make my way down to the first guy who brought his his, his troops into Afghanistan, actually Marine, a Marine. And I, you know, because everyone else has said, oh, we were here because the unit here was here before. And I said, what, what, uh, what were you guys doing there? And he said, well, we had just kind of arrived in that area and it seemed like a good place to set up a base camp, right? It's a good place to set up a patrol base because it was in between certain locations. And I said, all right, well, what happened when you guys were there? He said, we were there for eight months and nothing ever happened. <laughs> and then you piece it together. What then happens is after he leaves, we bring in the Afghan National Police. And and the importance of this uh, of understanding is, is to understand Afghanistan and what we were entering into and how our ideas about the war being about 9-11 were so far removed from reality. 
The Korangal Valley is about 15 or 20 miles long, about three or four miles wide. These people speak their own language in the valley. They speak Korangali. They never come out of the valley. Their, their major trade is timber trade. And even when they, so when they move their timber to be sold to Pakistan, the majority of the time, it's picked up by timber traders and taken to Pakistan. They barely leave the valley. These people had no connection to Al-Qaeda. They had no ideology of jihad or anything like that. They just want to be left alone to live the way that, that, that generations had lived before. What happens is in the United States, a strategy of counterinsurgency, which begins well before General McChrystal uh, uh, supposedly brings it to Afghanistan, um, the United States is going to bring in – because I think you have to look at – this what happens in Afghanistan is a as a as a really a neoliberal nation building experiment that comes out of the neoconservative thinkers who populate and dominate the Bush White House and the Bush Pentagon, the Bush State Department. So what we do is we bring the Afghan government into the Korangal because that's what we believe they need. And these people are not from the Korangal. These people are not even from the East. These are the people that have been fighting against the people from the East for more than a couple of decades now. And we put them in and we say, this is your government. These are your police. And then what do they say? The police say to the Korangalis, they say, these trees that you all have been cutting down, that your grandfathers cut down, your great grandfathers cut down, that you live off of, they don't belong to you. They belong to the Afghan government and you have to pay a tax on them. <sighs> and. So you can understand that how the stories we're telling ourselves about this war, the myths about this war, the idea that somehow this war is about 9-11. No, what we are doing is we are trying to, to we, we, inter, we have intervened in a civil war. We have taken, again, a civil war of our making, but we have, we've taken one side out of power. We have put the other side into power, and we have chosen through a divide and conquer strategy that we will have a military victory. On top of that, you have this neoliberal experiment. When I was in the State Department in 2005, uh, I was on the Iraq desk, but certainly familiar with what was happening on the Afghan desk. And the crisis that was occurring was that Hamid Karzai was being called the mayor of Kabul. And for those within the administration who come out of particularly the Chicago school, right, who, who are very, uh, again, uh, proponents uh, neoconservatives, proponents of nation building, proponents of making uh, nations in the image of the, of the United States because it's best for them and also best for the American empire, um, you know, this is an anathema. This is an affront. This is a, a real uh, a insult to the American project in Afghanistan, and that must be fixed. And so what you then see is starting in 2005, 2006, NATO expanding the war, which culminates with the Americans expanding the war in 2008, and then Barack Obama really accelerating the war. But understanding that we were pursuing a strategy of divide and conquer, where we were giving the people in Afghanistan two choices, the choice between a repressive theocratic government and a repressive kleptocratic government. Hmm. You have, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, the, the genesis of the Taliban themselves, they come out of the Mujahideen who fought the Soviets. But by 1994, the civil war in Afghanistan is brutal. Uh, it, it is causing incredible harm to the Afghan people. Uh, warlords are in power all throughout the country, and they are just preying on people. And the origin story for the Taliban is that they rise up against the warlords in Kandahar and overthrow them. And then, of course, the Taliban's version of this, the people join them and they become a popular movement. There is some truth to that. The thing that it's important for Americans to understand about this war is that the person who was the head warlord in Kandahar was a man named Gol Agashurzai. 
He brutal uh, trafficked in young boys. All the stories you hear, this is him. Um, he was the person the Americans put back into power in Kandahar. Mm. I mean, so yep. that idea that somehow we were going to subjugate the Pashtun people, that we were going to defeat them, and that throughout this process, by the right, by the barrel of our rifles, we were going to force Afghans to pick one of two terrible choices. I think that gets very dramatically unveiled to me when I had experiences like going to the Korangal and seeing it for myself. Or actually, I, I actually never got into the Korangal, but being a part of all that 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 kind of stuff, right? Because then you see that throughout. Again, I, I served in five different provinces and saw this being replicated over and over again. To your point, Kyle, about what you witnessed in that documentary, absolutely. The you know U.S. Marines and the British were in Helmand. They're an invasion and occupying force, but so are the Afghan police and soldiers who come in there. Mm. Uh, in my province I was in, we had eight Afghan army battalions. Of those eight Afghan bar army battalions, and there are, there are two major languages in Afghanistan, um, uh, uh, Dari and Pashto. And Pashto is what the Pashtuns speak. And in a province like Zabal, 99% of the people speak Pashto. Pashto. In the province I was in, where eight Afghan army battalions were, where only 3% of the soldiers were Pashtuns and came from the south or east of the country, the rest were composed of the people who had the postures have been fighting before. Um, the of those eight battalion commanders, only two spoke Pashto. Only mm. two. I mean, so they were about as worthless as we are in terms of right. talking to people. They were as much as outsiders as we were. Uh, you know, yeah. so I, I, you know, I think there. I've got a thousand stories I can tell like that, but I'll. And I don't run my mouth as long as you guys let so, me. But, let me. Yeah, so let's move on. <laughs> yeah, let, let me let me interject for a second. So um, when you look at Iraq, for example, one of the big takeaways for me is the goalpost moving in the story that we're told. Mm. So originally we're told Saddam uh, worked with Osama bin Laden and worked with al-Qaeda. Uh, then the goalpost moves when we learn that that's BS and it's, well, Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. And of course, the implication that they're trying to make is like, he has weapons of mass destruction and he might use them on us. So trying to scare everybody on that front, that's absurd. And then eventually we finally land on, well, Saddam is just a terrible dictator. Now that's true, but what they don't tell you is during the height of his atrocities, we were backing him and arming him. So that's yes. the dirty little secret. Um, yeah. But in the case of Afghanistan, what was the reaction among the troops that you were with? Because in 2009, our own intelligence comes out and says there's less than 100 oper operative Al-Qaeda uh, members still left in Afghanistan. And then by 2011, we killed bin Laden and that's in Pakistan. So fundamentally, by 2011, the original arguments that were made to the American public about why we're in Afghanistan, check and check. Mission accomplished. So was there a sense among everybody who was on the ground in Afghanistan like, okay, can we declare a victory and come home now? Or what was it like on the ground? Well, yeah, I mean, and, and, and hey, there are, I think about 800,000 Americans who were in the Afghan war. So lots of different perspectives, right? But I think what, what you get to, and one of the things you saw in these wars were so many Marines and soldiers in the ground combat units doing repeat tours. Sometimes, um, you know, not out of their own volition, right? Because this is just the way it's working out for them. And, and the United States is just sending them over and over again. I mean, at the height of the Iraq war, Marine infantry battalions uh, were spending seven to eight months in Iraq, in Iraq, three months back home, and then back in Afghanistan seven or eight months later. I mean, that was the tempo that they were under. I think um, uh, 
many of them uh, are there because of their buddies, because of the other guys in their squad and their platoon. And you, you see a lot of that. They, what they do is for each other. And that's not uncommon. I, I think most memoirs, most uh, discussions of, of veterans in war, that's what comes comes to is that it is about the people to your left and your right, you, you, you know, the people in your squad and your platoon. That's why you're doing this. Um, I, I think that there is a great misunderstanding, though, of why we are there. Um, in 2006, when I was in Iraq, and I'm glad, Kyle, you're, you're, you're bringing these together because I don't think it's possible at all. I think it's a mistake, actually, to try and disentangle these wars. Um, and, and the same thing, too. We have to speak about Afghanistan as we speak about all of the U.S. wars in the Muslim world. I mean, the United States is waging war from the west coast of Africa all the way to Pakistan. Um, and that is one world war in the Muslim world that the United States is, is conducting. And, and to, try and, to try and pull out the various wars and, and put them in their own boxes and to dissect them individually, I think, again, you're missing that we'll be missing the picture. But, you know, when I get to Iraq in 2006, I was just reminding of this, uh, that at that point in Iraq in 2006, a poll was done and it found that 80 percent of uh, Marines, soldiers, airmen, sailors, et cetera, in Iraq believe that they were in Iraq because Saddam Hussein was connected to 9-11. I mean, that had been disproved wow. for years at that point. But I mean, so I, I think there is um, there, you know, I, I can't I think people would be shocked to know the number of, you know, soldiers and Marines who went to Afghanistan or went to uh, Iraq who had never even read an article, a magazine article, a foreign policy article, whatever, a Time magazine article about Iraq or Afghanistan, let alone read a book about it. So the idea that that many that people in the military are kind of looking out and taking in the big picture, it, it's just really not the case. They, they, they take care of one another. This is the job they have signed up for. This is their career. This defines them. You know, particularly in the Marine Corps, there's a very influential book in the Marine Corps called This Kind of War by T.R. Fehrenbach. Um, it's about the Korean War, but the parallels to what he writes, he's, I don't like what he writes, but they're accurate in describing the Marine Corps as the, uh, similar to the legions of Rome and many men and women in the U S military adopt that view. And I think you can see that best, uh, uh, best shown through the generals that Donald Trump put into charge, Jim Mattis at the, at the defense department, John Kelly, who was Homeland security, who then became chief of staff and HR McMaster, who was his, uh, his, um, NASA security advisor. These are men who, unlike the neoconservatives under Bush, uh, you know, the Kalazads, the, 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 uh, Witzes, uh, et cetera. These are men who do not believe that, it is purposeful or even necessary to try and rebuild these societies. These are men who believe that these parts of the world are the frontiers of the empire. They are the borderlands and they must be subjected and kept down. That uh, the, the rebellion, the challenge to American authority must be met with violence. And if you're familiar with the CIA and the special operations community, you will have heard the phrase mowing the grass. Mm -hmm. The idea that we have to consistently be over there mowing the grass to keep the people down, to keep control. If we do not do that, it will rise up and we will be in, in, in trouble. And that, you know, that type of thinking descends down to, uh, you know, the, the individual Marine and soldier level. And it's also prevalent, too, because the books that the Marine Corps and the Army do recommend now to read kind of uh, go along 
with that thesis. Uh, these are books written by celebrity generals and celebrity journalists that really provide no. Look, when I was a young young officer in the Marine Corps, uh, I had to read books by uh, uh, General Giap, who was the Vietnamese general who defeated the Americans, Che Guerva, Mao Zedong. I mean, there were the Marine Corps reading list in the 1990s was was totally dedicated to critical thinking towards the Marine Corps into the wars. If you look at that Marine Corps reading list now, it is just completely written by, uh, you know, uh, just uh, sycophants and fools and liars. Wow. Um, but that thinking and who writes that, who writes those reading lists are generals like McMaster, like Mattis, like Kelly, like Betrayus, like McChrystal. So that type of thinking, get your point, uh, Kyle, about what these young men and women are thinking there are influenced that way. But you cannot, the problem is, is reality is smacking you in the face. And I think that is one of the issues that we see with the high rates of combat veteran suicides. We do not have uh, data on um, exact numbers of combat veterans versus deployed veterans. We do know that the order of magnitude of suicide in terms of veterans deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan is much higher than veterans who did not deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. Wow. And compared to the general public, if you are if you are a young man or a young man or a woman who went to the Iraq or Afghan war, your chance of death by suicide is six to 14 times greater than a civilian your age who did not go to the wars. Yeah. Six to 14, yeah. right? I mean, and what we know from all the research, dozens of studies have been show, have been done at this. Don't listen to people like Sebastian Younger. They have no idea what they're talking about. It's not about because people miss the war. It is because of the guilt, the shame, the regret. It's something known as moral injury as well as perpetration-induced traumatic uh, stress. And we know this because the VA has studied this for decades now. Since 1991, the VA has reported the best predictor in combat veterans of suicide is guilt. So your point, Kyle, is that you're in, you believe these things, right? You're told these things. The, the, the books you're told to read reinforce these things, right? You get out. You're out of that bubble. You're out of that group think. You're out of that environment. You're out of that support network. And now you start to... Think about it. It doesn't make sense. The stuff you heard over and over again, well, it just keeps being true. Why do these generals have to keep saying every year progress is just around the corner? You know, uh, they said that last year. They said the year before, as well as, too, if you dig into it and you realize that, what are we doing here? There's a story. Uh, Oliver Stone and Peter Kuznick had the um, uh, the book Untold History of, of the United States, which I recommend to everybody. And then Showtime did a documentary series on it. There is a story that that DVD box set went around a Marine battalion in Helmand and caused such distress, anger, uh, 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 despondency, because these Marines were learning about the nature of American imperialism, about how mm. this war is connected directly to that. And this is what they're taking part in, wow. that the officers ordered that those DVDs be confiscated. Wow. wow. I mean, that that's, that's what you're talking truth. about here. Wow. Yeah, because the, the understanding, again, as I said earlier, I didn't get it. You know, I mean, the, the continuity of history, how what we are taking part in is no different than what had been done before. A well, hundred years ago. The, I mean, we see the propaganda in full effect in real time right now and the way people are being convinced and persuaded that, you know, the same that you can have John Bolton go on TV <laughs> And, you know, pretend to care about Afghan women and girls like what a joke. I mean, this is pure insanity, but it's wall to wall, that type of coverage right now. Another thing I wanted to get from you, Matt, is um, what's the role of the drug trade in ah. fueling this conflict? 
So um, let's go back to the beginnings of this war in the 1980s. Um, at that point, Afghanistan produces uh, poppy crops, but they are all for, they are predominantly internal consumption. They don't produce enough to export. Uh, the CIA and the Pakistani ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Service, bring and at that point because the British had brought the crop into India and India at that point had included Pakistan. Right. So there are poppy crops in Pakistan. Um, the you, American CIA and the Pakistani ISI bring that crop into Afghanistan in the 1980s to produce for export in order to help fund the war against the Soviet Union. Hmm. The men who own those crops are the warlords who the United States has put in power since 2001. More importantly, when the Taliban come to power in the 1990s, by the time September 11th has come by, the Taliban has reduced, or uh, uh, they didn't eradicate it, but they reduced uh, the poppy growth in Afghanistan to a level where there was really no ex no no exports. It, it was insignificant. The Americans come in, we put back into power these warlords who own these poppy fields or who used to own these poppy fields who have become wealthy off of it. And now, of course, and for most of the last decade, because it grows, but for, you know, at least since 2008, 2009, Afghanistan has provided 80 to 90 percent of the world's illicit opiates. Uh, it, anytime anyone says, well, what's this war got to do with people here in the United States? I don't really think the, the war in Afghanistan affects us here. Well, we just had 93,000 people die from opiate uh, overdose last year in this country. 80% mm -hmm. of the world's opiates are consumed by Americans. Um, there is a very real connection between that explosion in opiate growth or poppy growth in Afghanistan and the consumption of opiates, not just in the United States, but around the world. So there, there's a, I think that's a good example for people to understand how these wars affect us here at home, how they do come home. Um, but one of the things, a story I can tell you all about uh, the man I mentioned before, Gol Aga Shurzai. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time I get to Afghanistan, he is in Jalalabad, the same city I was in, and he is the governor. And Jalalabad, uh, Nangarhar province is is the is where Jalalabad is, and Jalalabad uh, and Nangarhar control the most important border crossing for Afghanistan, which is called Torkum Gate, with Pakistan. So this is a um, this is a very lucrative position. But anyway, we have this program. Uh, it's called uh, the Governor's Eradication Program. And the idea is that we're going to give cash money. We, the United States, are going to give cash money to these governors to get them to eradicate the poppy crops. Golagar Shurzai's family still has vast swaths of poppies in Kandahar down the south. He's up in Nangarhar. So what does Shurzai do? He goes to the, the poppy growers, to the, the drug lords in Nangahar, who are also allied with us, us, by the way. But he goes to them, he shakes them down. He says, either you cooperate with me or I'm going to eradicate your fields. And those who, who, who call his bluff, he goes to the Americans and turns in those fields and, eradic and, we, and those fields are eradicated. So what do we do for shaking down his, 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 uh, his, his fellow drug lords, for consolidating uh, his, his, his share uh, you know, for increasing his share of the drug production in, in, in Afghanistan, right, for rubbing out his competition, we give him $10 million cash. Mm. 
Uh, I mean, that is that is how the American war on narcotics unfolded in Afghanistan. The lie that the Taliban was the driving force behind the drug trade in Afghanistan was exactly that. Certainly, yes, there are Taliban involved with the drug, drug trade. Of course, the drug trade is the only industry in Afghanistan. That's it. So the Taliban, of course, are going to be involved to some degrees. They are going to tax. They're an insurgency. They're going to tax whatever they can tax. They're going to tax the drug trade. However, the major players, the drug lords, the people who have controlled the 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 the, the Af the Afghan drug trade for these last 20 years are the U.S. allies. When I was there, the biggest drug lord in Afghanistan, because he controlled the drug trade in Kandahar, was President Hamid Karzai's brother, Ahmed Wali Karzai. Mm -hmm. Ahmed Wali Karzai was the governor of Kandahar, which is the second most populous province, second largest city in the country. And he was the largest. And that was the man who was in charge of the. Uh, he was the Scarface of southern Afghanistan, and he was our ally. Mm -hmm. I mean, so understanding those kinds of lies, because so much during that time, um, you heard about the narco-terror nexus, right, this, this, this connection. And again, yeah, the, the Taliban were involved in the drug trade. These last several years, some of the heaviest fighting you've seen in the south of Afghanistan has been trying one side or another, trying to gain control of, of the poppy fields in the south. That's why some of the, the violence has been so bad. But um, yeah, the, 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 the understanding of, of who the Taliban actually are, and to make it even more uh, nefarious, uh, Crystal and Kyle, to, to really show um, the how the United States is involved in this, why the United States is involved, how, the lies of it all. Yes, the Taliban got a significant part of their income from the drug trade. However, of their major funding sources, that was number four. Uh, the third most important revenue stream from them was from our own, from siphoning off American contracts, right? Mm. Either even contracts directly or shaking people down. Uh, you know, I used to, people used to, I used to go visit these small, outposts in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan, totally surrounded by Taliban. You'd ask these kids, these lieutenants and captains who were in charge of these posts, how much do you control? And this is in 2009, remember, and it never got better. They would say, "I can, uh, we control what my machine guns can reach to. That's mm. it. The Taliban control everything else. Wow. And, but so why didn't they get overwhelmed or overrun? Well, there's two reasons. One is because of American air power. The Taliban never really wanted to mass their people because they'd be attacked by our attack helicopters, our A-10s, our B-1s, et cetera. The other reason, though, is because all these little bases we had out there, every year we're spending a million or two million dollars to build wells, build schools, buy, uh, you know, whatever, you know, and who was getting that money? The Taliban commanders, their brothers were the ones who were the contractors building the schools. I remember in the province I was in, we were wondering why the school teachers weren't getting paid. Well, it was because the guy who was in charge of schools for Zabal province, his brother was a well-known Taliban commander in Wardock province. Where do you think that money went to? You know, oh I mean, God. so it was like that type of thing. So getting back to the funding sources, that's number three. Number number two, and, it, and it's kind of, I guess, arguable, at least when I remember the, the, the intelligence from this, from what I, you know, I, I could observe and understand and read from our intelligence and our own assessments in, in the American government, was that two and three, kind of at the same level, support from Pakistan, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, who we are supporting. So we're supporting Pakistan. Our ally, yes. Our ally, right? That whole thing. But the biggest, the biggest supporters for the Taliban throughout this war that the United States has been in have been the Gulf monarchies, by far. 
the Saudis, the Qataris, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Kuwaitis. That is the biggest support for the Taliban. Ties in very nicely with what we know from WikiLeaks, right? Because, sec you know, in WikiLeaks, uh, detailed very clearly in, in cables from the State Department and notes from Hillary Clinton and other people, top people at the State Department, that the major funder, the biggest supporter of al-Qaeda and Sunni terrorism was Saudi Arabia. And so the we, Taliban's but, greatest funding store, sources, just to encapsulate it, are our allies, our allies, our contracts, and the uh, opium trade that we helped to start. That's right. And we sustain that our allies own. Exactly. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that really is we have, I mean, there's a, there's a good saying in the peace movement that, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily tie into this so much, but in terms of the whole economic activity of war, that even losing wars make money. You know, That's and if right. you understand yeah. that, I think you can understand how this continues to be propelled. That's right. Well, you know, it's it's the case that in the United States, every single state has jobs tied to the military industrial complex, yeah. which shows you perfectly how even otherwise well-meaning Democratic senators who say the right things being anti-war at the end of the day, they're like, bah, ah, 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 not the Honeywell jobs in my district. Right. You know what That's I mean? Right. So horrible, horrible situation. Let me ask you this. Um. When you look at like the real reasons why we're there and the real reasons why we do what we do, um, I, I noticed this week that it struck me. Now, you might disagree and Matt, you might disagree. I don't know. But it struck me listening to Biden talk about like how we need to get out and why we're getting out. It struck me that he actually sort of maybe believed the cover story to some extent about why we're there. And... He said he even opposed the surge when Obama, uh, you know, proposed the surge. And apparently that's documented at the time. He was even yeah. public about that. So do you think that there's like a mix among our elites in terms of who really believes the cover story that we're fighting for freedom and democracy and human rights and women's rights? And then there are the ones who are the elites who sort of know that it has more to do with military industrial complex uh, profits and China and Russia and natural resources. What's your sense of that? Well, let, let's first go back to Biden's opposition to the surge, because that's uh, simply not not true. Um, Joe Biden supported doing what he called a counterterror strategy in Afghanistan. When Barack Obama comes into office, he, there are 30,000 U.S. troops there. By the summer of 2009, there are 70,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The United States then has the surge debate in the fall, which culminates in Barack Obama going to West Point in December of 2009 saying, I'm going to send 30,000 more troops. Joe Biden's plan was to send 20,000 more troops. That's Joe Biden. That was Joe Biden's opposition to the surge was he was going to send 10,000 less troops to Afghanistan than Barack Obama did. There are there that no, there are moments where Joe Biden is quoted as saying things. I mean, it, Bob Woodward's book, Obama's Wars, which I can't recommend enough to people, no matter what you think about Woodward. Um, he does show uh, uh, some things quite well. And, and in that, Biden is um, Biden is quoted as saying you don't have to do this. But I think that's in the context of Biden believing this counterterrorism strategy, which, again, was only 10,000 less troops than the 100,000 troops the United States had there. And the counterterrorism strategy that Joe Biden also brought up in his remarks the other day was carried out by the United States. So after General McChrystal gets fired, which I'm I'm. You know, I'm not a big Barack Obama uh, guy, right? I mean, but I'm very proud of Barack Obama for firing General McChrystal. We have a very serious issue with civilian control of the military in this country. If people are concerned about where our democracy is going, 
I, I think uh, we need to look and see how the United States military has been dealing with senior civilian leadership these last few years. That's a very dangerous path we may be on. However, uh, Barack Obama firing McChrystal, very proud of the man uh, for doing that. Um, the General Petraeus takes over. General Petraeus then says we are shifting from a counterinsurgency strategy to a counterterrorism strategy. The only difference was with was the United States expanded its rules of engagement. The United States went back to bombing villages with our aircraft, particularly with our drones. And the United States launched a real effort, uh, not a real effort, but a, a, a very heavy, serious uh, uh, night raid. Uh, 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 night raid policy, where every night U.S. commandos were landing in anywhere from 15 to 25 Afghan villages in the middle of the night, kicking in doors, shooting people. The idea was that we were going to terrorize the Afghan people into supporting us. There was some motion about we're going to fracture the Taliban leadership by this, and but there was no evidence that would ever work. Policymakers knew, knew, knew that. The idea behind a counterterrorism strategy was to terrorize these people so that they would stop supporting the Taliban. That's what General Petraeus put into action in Afghanistan while he was there. It failed just as miserably. So uh, on both aspects, what Biden said about that opposing the surge and we should have done a counterterror, both those are wrong because he didn't oppose the surge. And he we did try a, a counterterror strategy. Um, you know, I mean, so again, it kind of gets back to the point, the ease that people lie about this and about the predominant nature of the war, the lies about it. You know, why did the United States go into it? Well, the United States was already involved in Afghanistan because, you, again, you can't separate you can't say that Afghanistan starts on September 11th, 2001. You have to go back. You have to go back to 1979, even earlier. Uh, you know, you af this is a the Afghan war is a living legacy of the Cold War. Uh, I mean, it, that, that's and all the decisions that the United States made that are what influences the events that happen now. We think we have free will, but so very often we are really restricted in our choices because of the events that came before. Uh, well, you know, so, wait, so just, I just want to just to be clear, though. So the sense I'm getting is that you think pretty much all of the elites know the real reasons why we're there and none of them are actually sort of duped by the cover story, because my sense of it was that among some of the elected leaders, they might genuinely feel one way or another way about the war. But really, it's the deep state who runs the show. Yeah. and It's the CIA and it's the Pentagon. So that's not your sense of it. Your sense is that, like, all of them sort of know the real reasons why we're there. No, no. I mean, I had enough experiences on Capitol Hill that, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about and share. You know, I, I go in to meet Ike Skelton on St. Patrick's Day 2010. Ike Skelton at that time from Missouri, Democrat from Missouri. Um, he was the chair of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, right. So the, the, the person who is in charge of oversight for the people of the United States of America towards the military. Um, I give Ike Skelton my opinion on Afghanistan. And Skelton says to me, again, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee says, you know, I have never had a negative briefing on Afghanistan before. Wow. This is in 2010. Wow. I meet with Adam, I meet with Adam Smith in 2011, who at that point, because Skelton loses reelection. So Adam Smith at that point, who is the um, uh, uh, I guess he's the ranking member uh, or maybe maybe the second ranking, you know, second uh, the Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee. Regardless, he says to me. Uh, he says, I know the generals come in here and lie about it and there's nothing I can do about that. Mm. Um, I go and I see Jack Reed at one point, um, and Senator Reed provides plenty of time to me, has a great conversation. 
And at the end, as his aide, his foreign policy advisor, is walking us out, uh, she says to me, look, we know there's a discrepancy between the intelligence, uh, between what's really happening there and what the generals are saying. But we don't feel it's our place to get in the middle of that. <sighs> Senator Jack Reed, who is, you know, uh, I, I don't think he was the, at that point, um, he, he was, uh, you know, the number one or two Democrat on the Senate Armed Services Committee and not just Democrats. I remember being in the green room uh, at MSNBC back in 2011 uh, and Michael Steele, the uh, the former Republican National Committee chairman, um, says to me, this had happened. This was the summer of 2011. Uh, Steele had uh, President Obama said it's the right the right thing to do is to leave Afghanistan. Because at that point, he wanted to begin his drawdown from the surge in the summer of 2011. Michael Steele says to me, he says, you know what? And so Michael Steele came out and said, you know, President Obama's right. The chair of the RNC says that president, the Democratic president is right about the war. Michael Steele, and if you remember Michael Steele, uh, you remember he was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was always mm -hmm. saying things like that, right? I mean, he wasn't the, you know, uh, and he says to me, this is the most uh, his, this this is the most anger I have ever received being in this job. Wow. He said he had dozens of Republican congressmen, uh, House members, uh, congressmen and women, House members and Senate members say to him, call him, send him emails, whatever, say to him, look, you might be right about this, but you can't say that. Wow. I mean, and I could go on for a long time with stories like that where so it comes down to either they're too dumb or they're in on it. Another aspect I think that needs to be understood is that I remember meeting with Senator Casey's staff and um, actually the person I met with was a, a U.S. Army major and he was upset about this. He was upset about uh, one thing in particular, that uh, the briefings that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee received and the Senate Armed Services Committee received, seven, at, according to him, seven out of ten of those briefings came from not the State Department, not the CIA, not the Department of Defense, but from think tanks funded by the defense industry. Mm. So organizations like Institute for Study of War, yep. Center for New American Security. Which, all, by the way, right? by the way, yeah. they have a guy who goes on Fox News all the time, Jack Keane, used to be oh. in the military. Now he's directly funded by because he works for the think tank that I think you just named. He yep. uh, He's funded by them. He always is going on Fox News and always giving his opinion on war. His opinion is always pro-war, and they don't even bother to disclose that this guy Where is paid, yes, by defense contractors. And he's on the chair. He's, a, he's, a, he's on the board of directors for one of the top five defense contractors. I can't remember which one, if it's Raytheon or Lockheed or, or, or what so, but, um, or, or whichever, but absolutely that you, you hardly ever see that. So the, the, this idea that our elected officials are not receiving information on the war from it, our own government, from the department of defense, from the state department, from the CIA, but they're receiving it from organizations that mm. are you know, not not just funded by the defense industry, they're funded by the fossil fuel industry, by the banks, you know, on and on, because, you know, you start to get into that conversation about the relationships between the defense industry, the fossil fuel industry, the banks, the media, you know, as you guys know, that's a yeah. really great conversation to have, well, that, but it's very I complicated do, and, and it's I telling. do actually, so I want to ask you about the media, like as you're watching the coverage of Biden's withdrawal, and you see all these people who suddenly care deeply about the Afghan people, even though they didn't give two shits yeah. five minutes ago. Um, how should people, how are you viewing 
that uh, the narratives that are being spun and how should people be viewing the coverage that uh, the media is putting out there right now? Well, I, I, I think they should be, um, you know, critical thinkers about it, to put it politely, or skeptics or cynics. Look, the same people who suddenly care about Afghan lives are the same people who are totally cool with keeping kids in cages down in, down on our borders. I mean, they're the same people. Um, the idea that somehow uh, the United States was ever doing anything to help the Afghan people is just is just a, another lie. Uh, look, if some crumbs fell off the uh, 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 the table of the occupation of Afghanistan and some Afghans picked them up, hey, great, get a video camera over there. You know, that's a good news story. Put it on CNN. But the United States occupation was never meant, even though we were doing nation building. Look, the United States military has a doctrine called money as a weapon system. It, the, the purposes of the nation building were for the purposes of the United States, not to benefit the people of Afghanistan. The idea that somehow we improve the lives for women in Afghanistan. Yes, for some women in certain neighborhoods uh, of certain cities, life has dramatically improved. For men, it has dramatically improved because of the occupation. But you have to remember, 75% of men and women and children in Afghanistan live outside the cities. So for them, for those living particularly in the areas where the war was, their most pressing concern every day was whether or not they, their families, their children, their neighbors, et cetera, will be killed by, you know, a bomb put in the side of the road by a Taliban or a bomb dropped from the sky by the Americans. It's very similar to like, I mean, talking to Iraqis about it. They'll say, yeah, Saddam was terrible. But you know what? At least under Saddam, I never had to worry about my children being killed by a car bomb while they're walking to school. I mean, like, so, you know, the, the disillusion from that and then the idea, again, yes, there are women who benefited over the last two decades. The majority did not. Look, under this Afghan government, this warlord government that the United States put in power and has kept in place, uh, as many as four out of five Afghan women are forcibly married, many of them child brides, right? Yeah. If you're an Afghan man, you can legally rape your wife under Afghan law. And the, re that the major reason, the majority of women who are in Afghan prisons uh, are not in prison because... I guess they're all, you know, they're probably not let out now. I mean, the Taliban uh, supporters were let out. I guarantee these women haven't been let out because the majority of women who are in Afghan prisons are in prison not because they were Taliban supporters, but because they committed moral crimes. And let me make sure everyone understands what moral crimes means. Moral crimes means that if you're a woman who is raped, you go to prison. That's what moral crimes mean in Afghanistan, as well as in places like Saudi Arabia and, and other places. So, you know, and we can go on and on. We can talk about how the Afghan government routinely tortured as many as between one third and half of all prisoners in Afghanistan were tortured. Depends upon who picked you up. If you're picked up by the army, you know, one third chance to be tortured. Picked up by the intelligence service, half of the people they picked up were tortured. We could talk about the child trafficking. Look, mm. the. The, the child trafficking, this is not that Pizzagate nonsense. This was very real. There were U.S. Army officers who saw the child trafficking among Afghan government and military officials as a real thing, as a systemic thing, as something that was very obvious. Rather than doing something about it, the U.S. Army chose to punish several Army officers who stood up to say this is wrong. I'm working with a commander here, just as I worked over there with a commander, and there's a commander over there doing the same thing, who are raping boys daily. Mm -hmm. That's the Afghan government that the United States has been keeping in power for these last two years, or 20 years. So that kind of helps you understand why uh, the Afghan people this, these last, this last year, and especially these last few months, have said, you know what, if I've got to choose between this theocratic, repressive government 
and this government of warlords, like this this, this kleptocratic repressive government, you know what? I'm going to give the the, the 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 Taliban a chance again. Doesn't mean they're going to become t- uh, card carrying members of the Taliban or anything like that. But just the fact that right now the status quo is so untenable for so many Afghans that that the Afghan government is the villain, not the Taliban. That the Taliban were able to utilize that type of mostly passive support, but that influences all the warlords who switch sides. That influences the soldiers who walk away from their posts and go home. And you know, ultimately, this is how the United States loses this phase of war. And I want to make sure it, it, this is if we're talking about this phase of the war, potentially what can happen with this in uh, uh, this piece, which is a very cruel, unjust, unfair piece. But maybe now there is the hope if the cycle of violence is abated, if it's diminished, maybe there can be some rebuilding and reconstruction. But there's the other aspect of this where right now, I, I promise you, Kyle and Kristen, there, uh, uh, Kyle and Crystal, there are people in Washington, D.C. who are looking at Afghanistan and saying, you know what? This isn't much different right now than it was in September 10th, 2001. Taliban control most of the country. Their support is pretty minimal. They only control it because that's the way that the, the civil war has shaken out. Uh, they were less evil than the other side was. That's why they're in charge now. Uh, but the uh, you know, so there are men and women in D.C. who are saying, look, it's same as then Taliban control the country. Uh, there are warlords opposed to the Taliban who we have been allied with for decades who are holed up either outside the country or in certain parts of the country. Look, we can do again what we've done in, in, in 2001. This time we know better. This time we'll do better, right? And now you get into all the hubris, the arrogance, the ignorance yeah. that drives American foreign policy. And so that's well, why I, I think we're in a very dangerous place. Right? Or not we. I'm fine. I'm sitting here with my dogs drinking my coffee. It's the Afghan people who are in a very di- yeah. di- uh, dangerous place. Yeah, I think that's all really well said. And one piece that you raised there that you won't hear anywhere is the media leaves this impression like we made it amazing for women and girls in Afghanistan. But we only see the success stories. We only see that, you know, small percentage that has done tremendously better and good, great for them under the U.S. occupation any of the backsliding, any of the fueling of the drug trade, any of the cruel warlord, like that part, we don't see so much on the television. So, um, Matt, thank you so much for bringing this perspective to our listeners and viewers, because it's one that, frankly, you're going to hear in very, very few places. Thank you so much, guys. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And, and thank you for the work you guys are doing. Oh, it's our pleasure. Matt, tell everybody where they can find you. I don't know if you want to plug anything, maybe a Twitter account or wherever you're at. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually got back on Twitter uh, just a few days before all these events in Afghanistan started wow. to happen. Right. Yeah, because that's what's best, you know, Crystal and Kyle for my for my uh, PTSD, my traumatic brain health. injury, yeah. my substance yeah. abuse. Yeah. Jump right on Twitter. Twitter. That's that's right. what everybody says. Yeah. The best thing for your mental and emotional health. Right? <laughs> so, so I'm on Twitter again. Uh, it's Matthew Piho. Uh, you can look. I've got a website that I don't update very regularly. MatthewHo.com. And then um uh, I belong to the Center for International Policy. I write for Counterpunch at times and other places. So, yeah, yeah. But feel free. People, anyone got questions or want to chat about anything? And, hey, if there's any veterans out there who are listening to this, having problems, pe- family members of veterans, friends of veterans, hey, you know, you, you can find my email address on my website. You can contact me on Twitter. You can get me on Facebook. You know, please reach out because other people reached out. I reached out to other people. They helped me. And this is how we all get through this. So please feel free to do so. That was Matthew Ho. Um, Some 
phenomenally interesting and revealing stories from his experience. And um, I think the big takeaway from him is just the radical distance between what people have been fed year after year after year, what this was about, what was happening on the ground, that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, and it's all very clear cut, and the reality of what he and so many others actually saw and experienced. Yeah, when we invited him on, I sort of expected him to, you know, speak to the personal angle of war and his experiences on the ground. But the fact of the matter is, he did that as well as he was basically, he's basically a historian of the wars that he participated in. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he said a lot of stuff there. I like to think I'm relatively well read on these wars and his knowledge just blew my knowledge right out of the water. You know, like he had stories that I never came across them before, never read a single article about them. I mean, I should have known that the CIA started the drug trade in Afghanistan. Like, I should have just assumed that, but I didn't actually know the specifics of how that all unfolded. So that was pretty revelatory. And then also him delineating exactly where the Taliban is getting their funding and how we are either directly or indirectly complicit in all of those methods. And also, yeah, one of the other lies that we've been Fed is like, oh, yes, some of our people, they do some of this drug trade stuff. But the Taliban, they're really funded by the drug trade when it turns out. No, actually, the ones we're allied with are the kingpins who run way more of the poppy fields than the Taliban, actually. Yeah, I don't know how anybody could listen to that interview and then walk away saying... It was good that we were there. Or yeah. We should stay. Or, or I can't stuff. understand why the Afghan army didn't fight for their country. That line, like, well, what, you're going to fight for these warlords and to the his dude point, that took off with $160 million? To his point, it's basically a fake country. You know what I mean? You have these very disparate, uh, fractured, factionalized areas, and you have some different languages and different cultures. And it's just not, you get to think of it as one unified thing is misleading. Yeah. I mean, there's a very there is a very proud civilizational history in Afghanistan that is complex and it is multi-ethnic and it is tribal. And this is a crossroads in many ways um, has always been strategically important, which is why empire after empire has tried to exert their control there. But um, I mean, look, the bottom line is the whole thing was ill-conceived from the beginning. It took on a life of its own because of the money that was being made. People were lied to routinely, and that gave it a life of its own, too, because no commander-in-chief wanted the American people to actually see the truth. And what we've seen with the Biden withdrawal is that now people can just really plainly see the truth. And that as cynical as you and I were about this war, the reality was even worse than the the greatest critic could have possibly imagined. Yes, for sure. Um, and yeah, just to that point, I, I'm I was I just looked it up now. Yeah, of course, the British Empire played a big role in drawing the border for Afghanistan. Um, when you look at the Iraq border, same thing. Western powers had uh, a, a direct, you know, line and in, in creating that border, and I, it just it. It's striking when you think about just how much negative outside influence has mm -hmm. impacted not just the Middle East, but also Africa. Mm -hmm. You know, you listened to a book recently that, that went into the detail on that, and it would blow people's minds when you think about it. Like, even just, we were just talking about Afghanistan, but even Iraq, um, the way it's divvied up, 
again, it, it's like a fake country. You had um, the Shia population was the majority, about 60%. Sunni population is 40%. And the reason why Saddam, he was such a brutal dictator, he was part of the Sunni um, minority and they oppressed the Shia majority. And then also use vicious towards the Kurds. It's like, you look at that and sure, you could say every, people have their agency and they can make their own decisions and all that stuff. But you can't deny the uh, colossal impact of the outside influence, whether it's yeah. drawing the borders or being involved in drawing the borders or the drug trade, which Fueling is facilitated oftentimes by the West or some us propping up warlords. Yeah, yeah. Some Cold War. I mean, so many of these. Iraq also has a Cold War history that's relevant. Afghanistan, same thing. Obviously, in Iraq's funded the Mujahideen, which leads to Osama bin Laden, which leads to the Taliban, just to fight the Soviet Union. It really is dark when you go into the history of like country after country and realize, oh, we fucked this place up a long time ago. And think about it again to make a point I made earlier. How much of this stuff is the media talking about? Like mainstream media. Well, he said that he made Matt made the comment of like, you can't just pretend that Afghanistan didn't exist before September 11th. But that is, in fact, the general approach of the media is nothing. in, And actually, most of them, that's like the best of the coverage where they go back to track the history of the war. Um, most of them right now, Afghanistan didn't exist until like five days ago. That's the well, only exactly. part that they yeah. actually seem to care like about. No coverage. I remember screaming about this on my show all the time. I would cover Afghanistan whenever I got anything, print outlet or wherever, I would get a story and I'd cover it. I'm like... They never talk about a war that's still going on. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, if at times during the war in Afghanistan, they went literally a year without mentioning the fact they were still at war. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. There were giant swaths like that. Well, because their sons and daughters aren't the ones fighting it. And for right. all of their moral preening now, they don't actually give a shit about the Afghan people. And, um, you know, and then you wait until, if we do have... Afghan refugees who come here, which I hope that we do welcome as many as we possibly can, then they're going to take a right-wing perspective on the introduction of refugees into the country as well. So, look, they just carry water for the military-industrial complex. They're part of this Beltway Circle that, bottom line, has gotten fabulously, fabulously wealthy off of this war and so many other wars before them. Um, what was Matt's quote? He said, even losing wars are profitable, something like That's that. Right. Yeah. And nowhere has that been more true than in Afghanistan. Yeah, I like that quote of his. I also like he said, you can have a repressive theocracy or a repressive kleptocracy. kleptocracy. Like, oh, that well, sums it up so well. And you add on top of the repressive kleptocracy is also a bunch of foreign invaders. Bunch so, of foreign invaders, that, warlords with child layer sex that slaves. onto you know onto the whole analysis for people because um, I think the idea that there was some concept worth fighting for mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. is patently absurd. It's patently absurd. Yes, and don't guys don't don't believe any of the media bullshit. I mean, I don't know how I can't stress it enough. They're they're just terrible in every way. What I learned this week is that I actually hate mainstream media even more than I hate our politicians, mm. which is, I mean, that's, that's a bold statement, but yeah. that's really how I feel at the segment moment. Segment after segment is just disgusting. It really is. And have they ever said a word about the women and girls in Saudi, for example, well, that, or the well, famine right, that's in the Yemen point, or is any that these of this? Very obvious points to you and I 
what, that never occurs to them. There's a genocide going on in Yemen and a famine going on in Yemen, and we're backing Saudi Arabia as they do it. We even aided them with bombings and whatnot. Didn't say anything about that. Mm -hmm. Don't say anything about, even Biden made this point. Look what's going on in the Congo. Look at what's going on in Sudan. The point I always make is look at what's going on with the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. Yeah. There's all, stuff, all over the world this stuff is going on. And, and it's horrifying. Yes, and th they only hone in in the one area where they think they can make the point of, we need to intervene more. We, we need to stay war. there. Mm -hmm. Not like in Yemen where the idea is just don't actively facilitate the bad things. Where it's like, if we do less, it's better for the people in, in Yemen. Yeah. So they don't, but they don't look at it like that. It's just, it's atrocious. But anyway, on that note, let me do a shameless plug for everybody. If you <laughs> like, uh, you know, the show that we're doing here, um, you can always support us on Substack. You tip us $5 a month and then you get the video of this show and you get it a day early. Um, if not, that's okay. We still love you. And you can get the audio version, the podcast version of the show for free a day later. But as I always mention, uh, we take $0 and zero cents from advertisers on this show. And we've even go, gone above and beyond in the sense that we turn off the YouTube ads when we, when we put this on YouTube. So we've really made a point of only raising through small dollar donors. So we greatly appreciate anybody and everybody who, uh, who, donates to us and and enjoys the show and yeah we want to make sure i mean even if we're the only show that does this i'm sort of proud of that and i want to stick yeah. to our guns you no know? i totally agree with that and obviously the reason that we find this platform important is so that we can have these longer in-depth conversations with people like matthew ho who you're gonna you know you're gonna have trouble finding him Correct. certainly in this extended format anywhere else so we appreciate you guys. We love you guys. Um, we got another great guest for you. Plan for you next week, so you don't want to miss that. Oh, that's going to be a good one. <laughs> Enjoy your week, everyone. <laughs>